This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with the first official employee of FC Cincinnati, Dan McNally. He discusses the club's inception and his role within this venture, the behind-the-scenes workings to help a club run on a day-to-day basis, and why they believe FC Cincinnati will be a huge success moving forward. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. Oh, and also make sure you subscribe. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So Dan, listen, I know we caught off a little caught up a little bit off air there. Um it seems like all's well, but um yeah, really appreciate you spending a bit of time with me and how, how are things out in Cincinnati with the Bengals going to the Super Bowl? Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy time here in Cincinnati. We we're very uh, very fortunate we're a we're a sports crazy city, I would say, with FC Cincinnati and Major League Soccer obviously, and then we have um the Cincinnati Reds and then the Cincinnati Bengals in, in NFL and uh, yeah it was a, a wild weekend last weekend here with the, the Bengals making the Super Bowl and it's uh, you know the biggest the Super Bowl is the event in the US calendar um, so they, it's quite a it's a huge thing for our city and, and very exciting we, we support all the sports teams here and yeah it's, uh, it's good look we're all looking forward to it the game is like two weeks from now so I'm sure it'll be the the biggest sporting event in the in the recent history of this city for sure. I've just seen Chad Okosinko or Chad Johnson, as he's called now, put the prices up for tickets, and they're not cheap. So anyone that does uh, is able to go. I think it sets you back a minimum of five grand. So hopefully uh, the Bengals win if you're spending that much money. But um, well, my uh, my my couch in my in my house is free, so that's where I'll be watching it. <laughs> <laughs> That makes sense. So, um, listen, from my perspective, obviously, we touched base, you mentioned Larry had been on previously to discuss the academy side of you guys. And I think a lot of the listeners that would have gone to that episode would have been really impressed with the work that he does and you guys do and his experiences. And from my perspective, I obviously saw your pro- profile and I thought we'd be really interested um, to hear from you. Um, I know we've caught up a little bit, done a little bit of research, and you were kind of one of the the first members of this team have seen it from its inception to where it is now. So for people that maybe don't know you, haven't come across you before, don't know your background, do you just want to kind of give us a whistle-stop tour of where you grew up, what got you into football, and then what's led you to being in the position you're in currently? Yeah, sure. I was, um, I'm was. i from uh, Darwin in uh, England, which is just outside, right next to Blackburn in the northwest of England. Um, growing up, I was soccer, soccer, football. I should say football crazy, like all the other, the, all the other lads um, in my neighbourhood. Um, growing up, and I was um, a, a pretty decent player when I was a young lad. I was, um, I was at Blackburn Rovers kind of academy from the age of um, eleven to fifteen. Uh, growing up, so I played at a pretty good level. Um, I actually grew up. One of my uh, teammates at that time was James Beedy, who ended up going having a really good career for Southampton and Everton, and uh, we're still in we're still in good contact now as it happens. But um, yeah, I, I actually left Blackburn Rovers when I was fifteen. Uh, did an apprenticeship at Bury FC um, in the, in League One at the time, and uh, yeah, I had a, two years at, at Bury, played reserve team football for them. Um, and then I thought I was going to get a professional contract in England um, when I was 18. But uh, through 
a few decisions at the club at the time. I ended up not getting an offer of a pro contract. And, and right at that time, I got offered the opportunity to go to the US to play college soccer for, for a university, Embry-Riddle Embry University in Daytona Beach, Florida. Um, so I, I went there to get a degree, played for them for four years. And then after, after I played at um, Embry-Riddle for four years, I... I uh, kind of played semi-professionally in the US for a few teams, such as the Orlando um, Nighthawks and um, a couple of other teams in Florida. But then I really settled into a coaching career in Florida. Um, I was an assistant coach at uh, Nova Southeastern University, a school in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And then I moved to, uh, to be a head coach in college soccer to a school in Montana, Montana State Billings. Um, I'm probably the only 27-year-old man who's left uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida for Billings, Montana. But, but I, uh, I made that journey. I believed in myself and I became a, uh, became a head coach. And uh, I, had a, I had a great uh, eight years in Montana. That's uh, where I met my wife. And, uh, but then, I, I, long story short, I got the assistant coaching job at the University of Cincinnati, um, which was a step up from uh, Montana State Billings. And um, I was I was a the University of Cincinnati for two years and then I had a chance meeting with the, the future president of FC Cincinnati about this um, potential team he wanted to build and he wanted me uh, to come into the club as the first employee and uh, build the soccer operation and the stadium operation for what we now know as FC Cincinnati so that happened um, almost seven years ago and we've come a very very long way in a very short period of time so that's there's a lot of things that happened in the middle of all that, but that's basically my journey from, from kind of Blackburn to Florida to Montana to now Cincinnati. It's been a, it's been a wild journey in, in, in football. I, I'll be honest with you. I can imagine it must have been a pretty easy decision to go from uh, Barry or Blackburn across to Florida. Not anything wrong with those places, but I think I would have jumped at the chance if you can get yeah. to Florida Beach. It would have been lovely. The, co the coach at Embry-Riddle, um, a guy called Dave Gregson, he's actually an English guy. And he, when he came over to my house to make the offer to come out to, you know, sign a four-year scholarship to play in Daytona Beach, um, he said, and he still says this to this day, I made the quickest decision in, in scholarship history. <laughs> he, he said, uh, I said, where's, where's this school again? And he said, uh, Daytona Beach. I said, Florida. And he's like, yeah. I said, great, I want to play. <laughs> And that was it. So, yeah, yeah. hey, it was a good decision, though, to be fair. No, very good. Very good. So I think let's let's start with the end almost, because I think it's a fascinating journey to, to be the first employee at a club. So I guess the first thing for me is what was that initial meeting and, and how did it come about? And, and what was the vision that the owner was saying to you? What did he want to achieve? Um, and I guess why? What was the reason behind it? That's a good question. So Jeff Birding, who's now the uh, the CEO of the of the club, he um, I knew him through youth soccer in Cincinnati because when I was an assistant coach, I was making a little bit of extra money coaching uh, young players as well in the in the area, and I actually coached his son for uh, for like half a season. And me and Jeff kind of became I, I would say kind of friendly, um, you know, as a as the coach, and and and, and I was coaching his son and. He asked me to go for a, for a coffee um, to just discuss this opportunity for soccer in the city. And, and at the time, I thought he was going to offer me to become like the director of a local youth club or something like that. But when we met, he kind of gave me the vision of he, he believes in soccer is the future 
uh, what's going to be one of the biggest sports in the U.S. over the next 10, 20, 30 years. Cincinnati is a great city for soccer. There's a lot of youth soccer in the area. There's a huge groundswell of Premier League support. You go to the bars and restaurants around Cincinnati on a Saturday and Sunday morning, everyone's out there watching the Premier League games. So it's a soccer place, but there's no professional outlet. And he wanted to start a team in the USL, which is kind of the almost like the second the, the second division of pro soccer in the US. And um, we were going to play at a really good stadium, Nippert Stadium, which is in the which is on campus of the University of Cincinnati. It's actually a really big stadium. It holds about 30 to 33,000 people. So basically for me, it was a he, oh, and he also had the ownership. We had ownership backing of uh, Carl Linder, who's um, a very influential uh, business leader here in, in this region. And so it just seemed to me like Jeff, who had a history at the Cincinnati Bengals, is where he was working. He had a he had a long kind of distinguished career as a sports executive. We had this fantastic ownership, and I really believed in Cincinnati as a as a quote unquote soccer place. It just seemed like a, a brilliant opportunity. And for me at the time, it's it's weird how these things work. I was um, I just had my wife. We just had our second baby, our second son, and. The coaching world is very transient. Um, you, you know, you can be in one place one year and then another place the next. There's a lot of recruiting where you're traveling all over. And it spoke to me that I was just interested in having that home base and, and, and maybe soccer operations and stadium operations offered me that opportunity to be kind of close to close to home more consistently. So it all just came together at the right time, really. And, and I accepted his offer and it was kind of a, it was a crazy journey to get involved in that, you know. Yeah, no, I think I think it's really interesting, and like you said, probably the market. I know that's a big one out there, particularly when they're looking to, you know, set up new teams or new clubs, whatever sport it is. It, the market that's available, and like you said, the ground in it is a very sport orientated city, which yeah. which definitely helps. So when um, he had that initial conversation with you and you've gone out for coffee and stuff what was his vision in terms of what did he want the team to become what yeah what what did what was his vision and what he wanted the team to be long term that was the and and that's what really sold me and I think to be fair to Jeff um he's really sold that vision consistently for six or seven years now but the vision was always always to get to major league soccer so it was never the vision, and we talked about it in that first meeting, the goal was always to come in to the USL, do a great job for three or four years and force our way into Major League Soccer expansion so we could get Cincinnati to the top level into Major League Soccer. And it was that kind of ambition um, that really inspired me. Um, and then there were other things that we were already putting the wheels in motion of we had a really good venue, like I said, Nippert Stadium on the campus of the University of Cincinnati. That was going to be, if we could do it right, a brilliant showcase of, of what we could put together. But it was very, very humble beginnings. I started as the first employee for the club. And even though we had these grand ambitions of being in Major League Soccer, for the first three months, I was just taking my laptop, going into a local Starbucks, plugging in, and basically thinking up our soccer operation and stadium operation uh, before we kind of built out our staff. So for me, the journey has been a little different for most people because everyone sees now we have a $400 million stadium, we have a $30 million training centre, we're in Major League Soccer, we're paying 
uh, we have we've done multi-million dollar transfer fees. And for me, I started off working for this club on my own with my laptop. So it's kind of like the journey's pretty crazy for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. You, you, you mentioned kind of those humble beginnings. So that's your ultimate ambition in terms of, you know, this is where you want to go. You want to be a successful MS, MLS team, I imagine. And you want to, you know, yeah. have a real share in the market. How do you go around facilitating that? So what are those initial viewpoints? How do you start go, right, these are the foundations we need to lay in order for us to flourish? Because it's an ambitious target. So how do you go around doing that to begin with? It's a good question. We, we always had the, the mindset that if you, if you start a professional soccer program in the US and, and you don't perceive yourself as to be big, you won't be big. You will be perceived as a minor league sport. So we had a huge um, kind of press conference to announce the team publicly. And we did a really great job of basically saying we have great ambition, we have great investment, and we also have this fantastic stadium in Nippert Stadium to play our home games. And we're going to turn this college football venue into this great soccer venue. And we really hit um, quickly with um, this big press conference and announcement. And then really it was a grassroots effort as well, where we were, you know, going to the youth clubs and we were showcasing ourselves and making those connections. And we were, we had a great um, kind of social media team right from the word go that got the communication out. But also, I mean, it was as simple as, you know, at the weekends on Saturday and Sunday mornings, myself and Jeff Birding, we were going round to the bars in Cincinnati talking about our new professional soccer team to all the hardcore soccer fans in the city that were supporting Liverpool, Manchester United, Chelsea, all the above. And it was just kind of like we were building this slow, slow momentum over the course of about a year. And uh, we just had all the right pieces in place. And I, and I would say one big factor for us was Jeff uh, was a former local politician in the market. So he had some connections there that we were able to do some things maybe on a grander scale than um, other soccer programs had tried to do in this city before. So when we hit, we kind of hit big and we got a lot of attention here. And um, I just think that the mindset was like that we were able to get across was this isn't minor league soccer. We have ambition. We're trying to do this right. And um, yeah, the, the first game we had at Nippert Stadium a year after I joined, actually, we got... 14,000 people to come to the game, which at the time was like, wow, this is amazing. We got 14,000 people. The second game, we got 20,000 people. The third game, we got 22,000 people. And it never slowed down. It just kept building and building and building. And we really caught lightning in a bottle, I would say. And in terms of, uh, I guess, looking to create a culture, because, you know, you've got these grand ambitions. So within that, you're going to want individuals who match that ambition and what they want to achieve what were the initial roles you were trying to fill and and how we how did you and Jeff have it in mind in terms of the culture you wanted to create inside the club um, and how, how did you go around finding the right people to fulfill the roles you need to create the right culture moving forward that's a good question again we so we started off meeting I would I would go <laughs> to local coffee shops and like I said build out the plans for the soccer operation and stadium operation. And, and we would meet at Jeff's house 
um, a couple of times a week to kind of discuss all our plans as, as we as we gravitated towards this launch of the club, which was like four or five months away. A key hire that we made um, really early on um, was a guy called Jeff Smith, who was working again at the University of Cincinnati in ticket sales for sports. And we were able to bring him to FC Cincinnati. And the crucial aspect of that was he knew Nippert Stadium. So he had already been selling Nippert Stadium, our home venue for the UC, the University of Cincinnati football program. So we brought in all that knowledge of the stadium and how to sell the facility. So it was a key first hire. So we really had a good situation um, right away from um, selling the stadium. So right away, we had kind of the president. We had myself with stadium ops and, and the soccer ops. We had ticket sales that was already in place. And then we started building out piece by piece. The next hire was a person who came in and oversaw, <clears throat> excuse me, all the sponsorships. So right away we were hitting local sponsors to, to bring in, to bring in the, 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 the revenue that we needed and then communications and media. So brick by brick, we were building this little front office that was, that would be ready for when when we launched the uh, when we launched the program and the franchise, um, kind of in the, the the late fall of 2015, so we already had that in place. And obviously, structurally, that that's quite a, a big operation in terms of making the sponsorship and everything's right for, for that and bringing revenue in. How does that then um, link <coughs> into the performance side? Because ultimately, it's very well. It's, I'd imagine easier to sell tickets if your team's winning compared to if your team's losing. So when you're actually looking at, um, I don't, I, I think now you do, but if I don't know if the time you had general manager and then, you know, head coaches and actually filling out your roster, um, how did, as a club, did you go around trying to find the right people for those roles? Yeah, we, we, we worked with the league, the USL, um, when we got the franchise and we were about to launch. And one of the key components is when we launched the franchise, we wanted to announce our new head coach, our first head coach. And we wanted to make an impact signing in that area. We knew we needed to bring someone with some uh, real legitimate history in US soccer that was charismatic um, and that had a really good playing uh, background because on the business side, we were making some great strides. But we also had, to your point, we knew we had to mirror that on the on the soccer performance side. The uh, Yeah, John John Harts was our, was our signing. Uh, as, as head coach and he had a lot of connections in the in the soccer world in the US to be able to make those key signings early um, where we were able to bring in some really good players because of our ownership we were able to pay uh, players really well in that league and we were able to kind of put together an initial roster that could win games right away so I'll give John a lot of credit for that early on and then I'd imagine, yeah, as you said, having having him there, which really does help. How do you ensure, I guess, culturally is right as well? Because I look at in, in the in England at the moment, you get certain managers that maybe don't fit in with the culture of a club, be it for a variety of reasons, the style of football they play or the way they interact. So how did you go around securing that actually the individual we've got has all these checklist in terms of you know is well known is able to be charismatic so we can sell tickets it's got good connections so we can get players in but also actually gives us the fc cincinnati 
DNA of how we want to play and how we want to act and what we want to be perceived as moving forward? Well, it's it's a it's an interesting way to look at it, but because we were so new, we didn't have a culture, we didn't have a DNA. So everything at first was like we're building this together as we go and we're creating this as a group of people together. So it's my favorite time ever with our club. And it's a very unique situation where you're building this with no history. So we're building something new. We're creating, it's like starting a new business from scratch. So every day was exciting. Every decision was exciting. And I felt there was just this groundswell of optimism that kind of formed our early culture. Each decision we made, we made was kind of successful. And it just built this kind of like, almost like rolling ball of just goodwill between the city, ourselves. And then when the players arrived, I think they bought into this. Hey, this is really happening. This stadium's fantastic. The club's really taking care of us here, probably at a higher level than they had had before in the USL. And it just developed this really positive, good, strong vibe that we're all kind of in on something here. This is going to be great. And then, you know, I don't know whether it's you can you can put it towards like a, a rock and roll band, their debut album. Maybe that's the most fun time, right? That's when everything's new and that's when everything's exciting. And, and I kind of feel that way about FC Cincinnati. Those first 18 months were like, this is happening. We've created from basically zero this unbelievable momentum in this city and everyone's buying into it. The fans, the front office sponsors but also the coaching staff and the players and that first year was was it was remarkable michael i mean um we were averaging i think 22 23000 people every week to watch minor league quote unquote soccer and it was unheard of no one had ever done anything like that in us soccer before and and we were fortunate in that first year to play we brought over crystal palace to play an international summer friendly we sold 35,000 tickets for that. We only had about 17 full-time employees. You know, I remember picking Alan Pardew up at the airport with, when Crystal Palace arrived and he was asking me, you know, how, how the game's going to be, is the city, in, you know, up for it and, and, and what's the attendance going to be? I'm like, Alan, we've got 35,000 people coming to this game. The stadium sold out. This is the event of the summer in Cincinnati. And he's like, 35,000? He's like, that's more than we get at Sellers Park. And I'm like, I know, you're going to enjoy this. And he was blown away by it, absolutely blown away. Um, and I remember the day after, a little story, um, I was doing all sorts at that time. I, like I said, we hardly had any employees. And I remember getting a phone call from Crystal Palace after the, the morning after the game. And they're like, Dan, we've no one to take this player to the airport. He's got to get a flight. You've got to get him home. Um, on a different flight. I was like, sure, I'll, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. And it was uh, Wilfred Zaha. <laughs> I'm like, so driving Wilfred Zaha to the airport. And I'm like, this is getting bizarre. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I imagine, as you said, it probably has some negatives working in such a small team, but that was definitely one of the perks, that, that full-on yeah. access, etc. Is there anything in that initial year or 18 months that was either really challenging or more challenging than you guys were initially expected? Yeah, the, I'll tell you a challenge that we had 
um, when we go into kind of my role, the operation side of it, the soccer operation side of it is, you know, we didn't have a training centre. We trained where the team played in Nippert Stadium. So we um, kind of did some construction in some locker rooms down there to make a home team locker room, a visiting team locker room. They were right side by side next to each other, kind of underneath the stadium. And on uh, non-game days, the visiting team locker room was also kind of like a player lounge where we serve food for the players' lunch and all that stuff. But imagine doing that on a college campus every day and think of, you know, students walking around everywhere. There's no parking. Um, you know, it was it was kind of a challenge, like on a daily basis to make sure the operation worked, to try and maintain those high standards of, uh, of, of performance. Do you know what I mean? For the players, but also behind the scenes, I was navigating all these challenges when it came to the university. It's working students go when we're training. How can we get our players parking on a full university campus when classes are ongoing? Um, and by the summer, the stadium was open, right? It was a, it was in the middle of campus. And um, our FC Cincinnati thing was gaining so much momentum. We had three or 400 students just hanging out, watching practice every day, having their lunch. And I'm trying to manage, navigate all these different things. And it was really wild. Um, I, I, I would argue, I tell people all the time, I feel fortunate. In, in world soccer, I don't know how many times this has happened where a team has just come from nowhere and all of a sudden they're huge, they're popular. They're, 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 we were selling more merchandise in that first year than the Miami Dolphins, your team. We sold more merchandise, I think, in 2016 than the Miami Dolphins. We had a closet as a shop. The gear, the T-shirts were flying out like you wouldn't believe. I had a lunch that year with a guy who owned a local business in Cincinnati, who said, hey, I want to I create FC Cincinnati t-shirts and I want to sell them in my store. And we signed a small agreement over the lunch. The guy, it made his career. The guy was selling t-shirts and merchandise in this city like you'd never believe. They moved shops into a different part of the city because of that lunch and this little agreement we made. It was, it was wild, Michael. There's a, there has been a documentary made about all this, but... There's a story to be told about what happened in Cincinnati. It's kind of crazy. Uh, it's really nice. I think that it, I imagine for, for the players having that where you are on a campus at times can be inconvenient, but then at, some, at the same time, having 300 people watching your training session, you go, actually, this is a big deal. And what we're a part of is, is definitely going somewhere. But we were, um, so a good example, Michael, would be these players that we had, great lads, but they were, they were most of them had not played MLS. So they were used to playing in front of two, three, four thousand people, right? All of a sudden, we're playing in front of 25,000 every week. They're, they're kind of famous when they go downtown. They're, sell, they're signing autographs for an hour and a half after games. It was, it was wild. It was really fun, though, because... They were excited. The players were happy. Like they were, they were living this kind of like soccer dream, like we all were. You know, it was just a really fun time. So moving on to obviously you you make making that jump. So you've been been in that league for a couple of years at UCL, and then you want to obviously ambitions of becoming an expansion team and being part of the MLS. How many years did that take? What was the process for that? And did much change in terms of making that jump through from your perspective? 
it, everything changed. We we spent three years in the the USL, the minor league, uh, uh, the kind of I don't want to call it the minor league, the second division of, of US soccer, um, and then because of the crowds we were getting, because of the backing and and the um, and the for, fortunate kind of like groundswell of of, of um, kind of um, emotion that was following us at that time, Major League Soccer was started knocking on our door and it was a time for expansion in Major League Soccer. And because of everything we achieved in those first three years and the ownership we had, we were able to take a step into Major League Soccer. Um, the, the challenge, I think, for us was that it all happened so fast. So sometimes in MLS expansion, a team may get two or three years, right, you're in MLS, now you've got two or three years to build your team. Your first year in MLS will be 2025. For us, it was like you're in MLS and you're an MLS team in six months. So we had to um, change everything about how we operated in such a short period of time. Um, we, we, built, we have built um, a training centre um, that was ongoing at that time. We had to build a stadium, so we built a stadium. So the first three years of our club were like this glorious kind of journey to MLS. Then we got in MLS and the last three years has just been kind of almost like figuring out everything about being a major league soccer club as we're actually in the league. So we've built a stadium now. It's the best stadium in the league. But if you can think about your first three years in a new league, on the soccer side, there's a number of challenges. At that time, we were also building a stadium. We're also building a training centre. So the ch And we've also gone from having, you know, 30 or 40 employees to now 150. So the last three years has been an enormous challenge going from the, the kind of the second division of US soccer up to the, the major league soccer because it's not like in England where clubs are 100 years old and you get promoted and you kind of manage that. For us, it's, it's not like that. It's like you're in this league and then all of a sudden you get an expansion bid and everything changes. All the expectations changes. So this three years, the last three years has all been about um, kind of navigating that process and being now, I think we're now established and ready to move forward as a, as a real MLS club. So looking at it from a, uh... I guess looking from an asset point of view, so you're obviously building the stadium um, and you're building the training grounds. What is the process that you guys went through to get sign off on both of those? And what, I guess, more interesting for me, what are the conversations you've had internally as to what they look like and what they encompass and what they've got in them? Um, as a Spurs fan, obviously I know the our stadium went however many million of pounds over budget, but it seems like there's a lot of thought that's gone into every aspect of the training and training, uh, sorry, of the ground from the long bar to beers filling up from the bottom, from the pitch rolling underneath the South stand, et cetera. So what did that actually look for you guys in terms of going, right, this is the direction we want to go in. This is where we're going to locate them. This is why, who did you consult, et cetera. Yeah, it's a great question. We, we had um, on the, on the, on the training center, I was, I would say, one of the leaders in, in our training centre design. Um, so, um, you know, we, we looked at a lot of different training centres in Major League Soccer. Uh, we looked at different training centres in Europe to try and take ideas and thoughts and process. But 
if you take it right to the original start of it, it's, it's where do you locate? What land can you acquire to build this uh, facility? And one of the things we really thought about, and it's, and it's proving to be a good decision, is you don't want your training center right in the middle of the city. You want your stadium in the middle of the city, but the training center you want a little bit outside because traffic in the city at four or five o'clock at night is really difficult. And we've got academy players training here every evening. So having this facility where we have it about 20 miles outside the city off a main highway is really good from a, an access point. So we were able to locate a really good location for it. And then um, the keys for us was, um, I'd say, uh, player performance and player care. So we really wanted to make an impact in terms of having a, a training centre cafeteria where we were able to do meals, breakfast and lunch every day for 50 to 60, maybe 70 employees, including players we have here. Uh, that hadn't really, be done, really been done on this level in the US. Over in Europe, we looked at various professional clubs and that was kind of a standard operating procedure is, is player nutrition, player welfare. So we really impacted that um, here. And we also had, uh, we have great sports performance facilities here. We have great athletic training facilities here. Um, and we also have offices up on the second floor where I am now. So the coaching staff, the general manager, the oper soccer operations staff, the soccer communication staff are all in one building together. So our daily flow is we're all together making decisions. And um, and yeah, it was it was a long, long process. And we had local architects here, a company, a company called MSA, who um, who did the who did the architecture for the for the building. And yeah, it was uh, it was it was an exciting time. It was for, for a guy like myself who. Um, grew up with the game to be kind of charged with designing a, a training facility at this level was 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 really good and, and honestly I I kind of went back to some of my experiences as, as a player myself um, kind of maybe in some less glamorous situations uh, but maybe that's a strength of mine in that I've seen how it shouldn't be done and I was able to figure out how it should be done to really take care of players um, yeah so I'm you know obviously in my career this is one of the best things I think I've done is create this training centre for the players and in terms of visits of places you went is there anything in particular or any one club where it really stood out and you thought yeah they've done really well here or what they've done here what they've created yeah is really smart yeah um here in the in the US um I really like what Atlanta United did um we we I visited them and, and really they were very gracious about talking to me and, and at me answering questions about how they built their facility. So on, on this side of the Atlantic, Atlanta United, but on the other side of the pond, so to speak, I had my ideas from Blackburn Rovers, which have a really nice training center in uh, Brock Hall, which is a, a quality training center. Uh, but also um, our, our Jeff Birding, the, the, the club CEO, he went over, I believe to Tottenham Hotspur, uh, talked to Spurs and he was like blown away by their training facility and I remember a, uh, a Sunday morning uh, kind of crisis meeting we had me Jeff and, and uh, another uh, consultant we had because he came back with all these photos of the Tottenham Hots top of Spurs's training center and they have this swimming pool and he's like we got to have this swimming pool and I'm like Jeff I said we have a budget and I we're, we're maximizing this but I can't build, we can't build this right here. So that maybe 
our training center 2.0 will 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 fulfill some of those dreams. But uh, yeah, he was he was really blown away by I think Tottenham and uh, Chelsea. I think he also went to Chelsea and brought back a lot of info. And I had my experiences. You know, when you're playing in reserve team football in England and, and as an apprentice, you get to go to a lot of training facilities. So you see the good and the bad. And I had a lot of that in my mind, you know. And is there anything particularly unique that you've got in your training ground that you're particularly proud of? I know yeah, Tottenham, yeah. for example, they've got a dome that's underground. So yeah. it sounds a bit backwards, but for them, that is one of the big things. They've got a dome on the ground and you're kind of walking along and you're like, oh, there's a mound there. And you look down and however many yeah. feet down there's loads of people playing football. So is there anything particularly unique at, at your place? I think so. We, we have a really good flow for the, for the player performance. So they go into the the cafeteria, then there's the locker room, then there's athletic training and then there's sports performance. And the really cool thing I believe about our sports performance is that we have, it's a huge room and we have these beautiful uh, glass uh, garage doors. So when the summer hits here, we're able to open the garage doors. So the guys are able to do their pre-workouts in our sports performance area. And then they literally within 10 yards are walking onto the pitch so it's a really nice flow within the training centre and then the garage doors open and wow, the whole team is walking out onto the field together. It's it's a little touch we have, but I know all our players all, all think that it's a really cool um, way of like walking onto the field and it's all right there, you know. So um, I remember when I was an apprentice at Bury, we had to walk a mile and a half to the training centre from the stadium through a graveyard, which uh, wasn't the greatest thing, especially in December and January, if I remember rightly. So, yeah, a little bit of a difference for these guys. You end up having to go and get, fetch your football from there, which isn't ideal either. So, um, I've had, uh, yeah, on a different pod, I'll tell you about some of those experiences. <laughs> <laughs> and so, looking at it from your role now of the operational side, a lot of that will be coming into, as you mentioned, player care and trying to sort out for you guys. And so, obviously pre-season tours or pre-season training camps or supporting players with whatever it may be on a day-to-day -day basis what does your role actually look like in terms of supporting the players to hopefully obviously go and perform on the pitch yeah so I'm the director of soccer operations and the Mercy Health Training Centre so one of my main roles um, is, is scheduling and organising the training centre when you think first team training academy training um, how the building flows and, and, and all that stuff. I also oversee the sporting operating budget. So that's all the team travel. Um, that's all the equipment and all those different functions as well. In terms of player, um, player care, player welfare, we've just actually hired a player welfare coordinator who was born in uh, Brazil because I, I felt that it's really important. MLS is really moving towards a lot of young South American players. So to have someone on staff with that background is, is really key. And we've been able to hire that who works alongside our team administrator on all our on all our player care. But um, yeah, it's, it's a big job because, um, you know, you sign players, uh, they come in from all over the world. You've got to get them situated in the city. You've got to find them a place to live, make sure they have a, a car they can drive. Maybe they don't all drive. So you've got to make sure you get them the lessons to learn how to drive. Um, and then you've got to kind of integrate them into the city, into the club. Um, we do a lot of work with uh, language lessons, you know, in English, uh, making sure their, their English is coming along. So we have consistent lessons through the year. Um, and then here in the in the training facility as well, as well is making sure they're getting the right nutrition, 
making sure that we have a great athletic training staff, making sure all their needs are taken care of. And uh, yeah, so it's kind of a holistic approach, but we have a lot of people involved. I would never take credit for doing all this myself. We have a team of people that really working towards uh, taking care of our players. I think this is a very timely question with what's gone on. This obviously the second of um, February today. We've just had the transfer deadline day. But for you guys, when you're signing a player, um, say it is the 31st of January and you've got someone coming across, um, mm. what what is the step-by-step -step process in terms of, you know, you've had agreements from management and say, yeah, this is a player we're going to sign, contracts are all signed, etc. or he's going to sign the contract. He's going to be at the airport at 5.30, go. What, yeah. what kind of process actually takes place for a player at that point, kind of going, going from getting off the, the plane to then obviously being in a position where they're actually on the pitch training the following day or whatever that looks like? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of work behind the scenes, I'll tell you. that I'd take it even a step further back, especially when you're signing international players. Immigration is a huge part of it, uh, making sure all the, the player and any person travelling with the player has the right documentation. Uh, that in itself is a, is a lot of work um, and it's kind of an unseen function of the club, but all the immigration work is key. Um, during COVID, that's been a lot more challenging, um, but that's another podcast completely as well. But yeah, we take it step by step. So there's no magic formula other than we have good people here working that care about the players. So yeah, we like the human touch. So when a player arrives, I always think it's best to have a representative from the club arrive at, get to the airport to pick them up, make them feel welcome. Um, they normally go into a hotel um, in the city. We, we always pick out the best hotels and they'll stay in the hotel for a couple of weeks. Um, we're at that time then we're using that time to work with them with local um, kind of real estate uh, staff to make sure we're looking for them a place to live. And, and, and everyone has different things, right? Where if it's a, a family man who comes in, who's, you know, 29, 30, who has two kids, then we're, they're probably looking to rent or buy a house and schools for the kids become part of the conversation. If it's a, a younger player who's 20, 21, 22, they normally want an, an apartment downtown. So they have different needs that we kind of take care of. So, yeah, the, the, the initial getting them here, then meeting with them to make sure we're, we're taking care of their accommodation needs are key. But then, yeah, the, the next day after they arrive, we'll, they'll go to the hotel, they'll have a good night's sleep, come into the training centre the next day. Um, we will get all their equipment. So with our equipment staff, make sure they have everything they need, their locker is set up. So a big thing for me is, uh, and this can be really tough, it sounds silly, but it's, it's important is when I think a player walks into the locker room for the first time, his name should be on his locker, ready to go with all his equipment, feel part of it. Sounds simple. Well, if that turnaround is 24 hours, it's not always that simple. You've got to get the graphics department printing the names and all that stuff. It sounds, sounds kind of crazy, but that's the stuff we do. And so my, I'm big on first impressions. So again, when the player arrives at the airport, they're meeting one of our staff. When they get to the hotel, we meet with them to make sure they're taken care of. When they arrive at the training center, it's warm, friendly faces into the locker room. Their locker is set up with their nameplate and all their gear. And then, hey, they meet the players and they're out on the training pitch straight away. When they're finished training, then it's meeting with us to talk about all the other details. You know, like I said, accommodation, transport, 
family background, making sure we're aware of any family and friends that, that may be coming over or, or needs. And then honestly, if it's, um, you know, for us, a, a non-English speaking player, we have to get them set up with uh, language lessons pretty quickly. So, yeah, it's the full, it's the full embrace, right? And how long do you think it, again, it might be hard, on average, how long do you think it takes for someone actually to come in and feel settled in a new environment where they can go, I've got everything near enough as I would want it? I mean, it, it all depends and it's situational based. So for, for on any given time, it depends. There's a lot of variables. So if you bring a player in pre-season, I always, uh, in a, you know, in the off-season, so they're there for the first day of pre-season, I always think that's the best because then they kind of feel integrated in the team at the appropriate moment. So they're going through all the steps with a lot of other people. And I feel it kind of, their natural path is just quicker because other people are going through that at the same time. Um, so they kind of blend into the team faster. Um, in that way, our, our goal would be, um, you know, by the end of pre-season, before the first game, they're set up in their proper living accommodations, they've got transport, they feel part of the team, their language lessons are set up and they become part of the culture of the, of the club. Um, when you bring people in midway through the season, it's a little bit more challenging because our path is like we're in the middle of the season. Do you know what I mean? We're like a steam train going through the year. And then all of a sudden we have a couple of players that we have to go back to our initial process and kind of and make sure they're taken care of as well. So those can take a little bit longer because I also feel for the player themselves, they're coming in in an awkward moment. Do you know what I mean? The team culture is already established and they, they're just kind of put right into the middle of it. So I always think in the January transfer window in Europe, I always think about those players on transfer deadline day. It's harder for them, I think, to transition in rather than a player that gets signed in the summer because they just have that natural pre-season with the whole group. But that being said, I would say the biggest variable of all is the player history. Are we dealing with a, a 19, 20, 21-year-old that this is their first move, so everything's new? Or are we dealing with a player who's 28, 29, 30, who maybe has been a quote-unquote journeyman in their career, and this is their like sixth move, and this is like, I'm used to this, just let's take care of it and let's go. So... You know, the time of the year of the signing plus the kind of the history of the player is the key variable. And in terms of someone that was maybe exiting the programme from an operational perspective, obviously there's going to be a point which your role ends and then the other clubs start. What do you have to help facilitate? What do you support with exit strategies for them? Yeah, I, I mean, for me, I think the key is just relationships and, and having a personal touch. I think it's always important that, you know, in, in this business, um, you treat people right. So it's very difficult for a player when they get released. And um, we make sure we have a human touch with it, that we, we make them feel uh, that we still care and that we're going to take of all their needs in a very uh, professional way and um, just be there as a sounding board for them and, and really lead them to their next club. Uh, because on, on my end, I want people to always feel good thoughts about FC Cincinnati. I want players that leave here to feel that that's a club that cares, that takes care of us. We try and do the right way, things the right way. And, and maybe for me, Michael, like I wasn't a great player. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I worked hard. I, I made the most of my ability to a certain extent. 
But I was released. I was released by Blackburn Rovers, my hometown club, when I was 15. I was released by Barry when I was 18. I know how that feels and it doesn't feel good. So I always think about that. Maybe in my job, it's kind of easier for me because I wasn't a great player or anything like that. So I know how these guys feel when, when things don't go right. Um, if you'd been a, a, a brilliant player all your career, um, you know, when you played at the top level of the Premier League, maybe you don't understand what it feels like to fail. I know how it feels to fail. <laughs> and that's maybe my main strength, you know? And do you support on them with like selling the houses and moving in terms of, you know, if you've got a wardrobe full of clothes and all that, do you support them with that? Or is that, yeah, yeah what does that look like? Yeah, we actually work with a local real estate company here in terms of um, purchasing houses and renting agreements on apartments and getting out of leases. And we and we work directly with them. Um, I just feel um, when it comes to accommodation, you want to work with experts. You want to know who are on the pulse of everything that's going on in the in the city. So we work with a real estate company with that. And then, yeah, as players leave, we, we work with them and we have uh, staff here um, that help them with their move. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of daunting when you're 24 and you may be moving city. And, um, you know, we all think these players are great su superstars and they have all the answers. They don't have any of the answers. Do you know what I mean? They're just, they're good soccer players. They don't know how to move across country. And we sh they shouldn't be expected to. They're just young guys. So we have staff here that helps them along the way. And um, it's sometimes surprising and you forget how little they actually know about life at that age. And um, you, you just have to help them along the way. I think it is interesting. So I think that's something you do, you do forget is like, if you go on holiday, it's the equivalent of going on holiday somewhere that you've never been before. And then the first thing is you're like, where's the local shop or where's the petrol station? And that's yeah. exactly what they're going through. They, you know, yeah. in some cases they might not speak the language. It might've been a completely yeah. different country, but they're going from somewhere where they know where the local shop is they know where their local restaurant is or their favorite restaurant yeah. or whatever to i don't even know if i need groceries where am i going yeah um, well it's i again i i just you know I, I go back to my own experience and i left blackburn at 18 and landed in daytona beach florida i'd never been anywhere i'd never done anything i was just a, a young lad from from the northwest of england landed in florida kind of on his own trying to make my way in college and I was lucky I had a good, really good coach that helped me through a, a lot of uh, situations. But I've been there. I know how it feels. You need people around you. Um, I would not have survived in America without the support of so many great people that have helped me along the way. And again, maybe um, that's something I bring to this role is that just understanding of situations. Do you know what I mean? And, and um, maybe if I have any strengths, maybe that's one that I'm... I'm, I'm good around people and I kind of have an idea what people need. In terms of vision moving forward, what are the plans? Obviously you said you've got this relatively new training centre, stadium is all done, you've been in the MLS for a few years now. What What's the vision for you guys? Is there any particular plans or any particular projects on the horizon that you want to consolidate even further? Yeah, we're, we're an ambitious club. And we've spent three years in MLS getting our house in order, making sure we're, we're a functional MLS club. And, and I think now that the focus for us is on-field performance. Um, 
we we have had a, a brilliant first six years in terms of huge success on the field in the in the USL. We were able to get that MLS expansion. We built the stadium. We built the training center. Now the focus is getting it right on the pitch. And we've just hired a new general manager, Chris Albright, who comes with a great experience from the Philadelphia Union. Got a new head coach, Pat Noonan, who again comes from the Philadelphia Union, who, who've done a great job up there on on-field performance. And our goal now as a club is to really, um, we, the kind of the, the foundation is built, but now we want to get those results on the field. And that's the whole focus for us over the next two or three years is to take that next step. Not only do we have, the best stadium in the league. Not only do we have one of the best training centers in the league, but we legitimately have one of the best teams in the league as well. So that's kind of our uh, our focus right now. Yeah, everything is on field. How does a new general manager or new head coach affect you and your role on the upside? It's just, I would say, it's just all about relationships. Um, I have to meet and speak with the general manager and head coach on a daily basis, uh, making sure that they are aware that. I am very much with them and that I care about all the um, things that are happening with the players that they sign and the players that they're coaching. And it's just all the all the logistics, really. Um, my role, I feel, is to make sure the head coach doesn't really have to worry about anything else other than going on the field, coaching the players and picking the team during the game. And believe me, I am aware that's a much bigger job than what I have. Um, and there's much more pressure involved in that. Where I take um, pride in my role is that when the players get on the field, they're ready to go. They're ready to do what the coach wants them to do. I take pride in that when the GM signs a player, we get them in market here quickly and we get them ready to, to perform for the team. So really, it's just, just taking pride in all the behind the scenes details that no one ever knows. This is why I like doing this podcast. You're actually talking to me about what I do. <laughs> but that's there's lots of people in, in the sports industry like me that you'll never know about. But we kind of make the, the place tick behind the scenes. Um, and I'm fine with that. You know, I, I appreciate the fact that the coaches and the general manager, they're out in the public eye. They have to take a lot of criticism if things go wrong and they're under pressure. My role is to try and put them in a, in a, in a position to succeed. Last question for me, which is, um, who's the most impressive player or coach you've worked with or against, and why? Oh, that's a that's a that's a really good, um, really really good question. Um, in terms of in, impressive coach, um, I am going to say I've, I've got great uh, thoughts about how our, our new coach Pat Noonan is going to approach this job. I think he's got a really great background, and I think he's going to do a fantastic job job for us. Um, we've had some great coaches here uh, at FC Cincinnati. I go back to John Hawks, who really uh, was the perfect man in the perfect time for us. And then he, we, we also then brought in a guy called Alan Koch, who led us to two fantastic years um, in the USL before getting into Major League Soccer. And Alan was really able to put a great team together and, and, and was a huge part of our success. Um, and then, you know, a, a player, that a coach that everyone um, in, in England will recognise is we had Yap Stam here um, as, as our coach. And, um, and and what I always took from Yap is, is, is like he was such a humble guy. Like I I, I knew Yap as, as like this great, fantastic centre-back for Manchester United. He was in his day, he was probably one of the best player uh, defenders in, in the world, really, in, in his peak. And uh, he was just such a good guy to be around, have a, 
have a coffee with him. And um, he used to, we used to play staff games here on a Friday and uh, he'd play. And believe me, um, you didn't want to hold on to the ball too long. He'd get you, he'd, he'd, he'd crash into you. But yeah, we've been fortunate to have some, um, some really good, um, some, some good coaches here. And then in, in terms of players, um, for, for FC Cincinnati, I, I go back to the early days. We had a player here, a midfielder called Kenny Walker, who, um, you know, he he played at a number of different uh, franchises between, you know, he had a, he played in MLS and he also came down to the USL. And I just always remember Kenny was just that great first captain we had. And he was a very kind of good presence in, in the locker room. And he, and he, and he just inspired people around him. Um, and then, uh, you know, we had a, a guy from Argentina called uh, Manuel Ledesma, who I think played in, he played in Europe as well. He played at Middlesbrough, maybe QPR, and, he, and he's played all over the world. And uh, Manu had a, a, a fantastic left foot. And I would say he's one of the most, uh, the biggest crowd favourites we've had here. He was a transition player from, he played with us in the USL and he also graduated up to the MLS team. And I know the fans here still think about him. He's, he's, he had a fantastic left foot, great free kicks. And he played with a lot of passion and spirit. And uh, yeah, he, he, he was a favourite of mine for sure. He was actually at QPR when I was there as a scholar, yeah. so I know I know him very well from uh, Resi Games, etc. But yeah. Um, yeah. no, listen, Daniel, really appreciate your time. I said a really good insight into, as you said, behind the scenes of what goes on at a football club and yeah. actually all the logistical and ops side of making a football team actually run. And um, you're doing a really great job from all the bits that I see. So keep up the good work and hopefully catch up with you again soon. Oh, thank you, Michael. I appreciate you inviting me on. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.